invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. You'll find that on page 862 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, uh, we invite you to take that Bible in front of you as our gift to you. As you're finding your way to Luke chapter 6, I don't know if you heard this week, but David Neff, who worked for Christianity, Christianity Today for almost 30 years, and retired just a couple years ago in 2013, spent some of his time there as the edit, uh, magazine's editor-in-chief, wrote on social media this week, quote, I think the ethically responsible thing for gay and lesbian Christians to do is form lasting covenanted partnerships. I also believe that the church should help those in those partnerships in the same way the church should fortify traditional marriages. It's probably no surprise to you that you and I are living in the midst of a sexual revolution in which long-standing ethics are being cast aside. And uh, I think we're aware of this. And it seems to me that the ranks of those who consider homosexuality and same-sex marriage and transgender transformations to be a sin is shrinking rapidly. And that's not surprising to you, it's not surprising to me, but what is somewhat alarming is that it's just not the evangelical Christians taking a stand against the larger culture in the Western world, but many evangelicals are quickly joining with the culture in support of this lifestyle. And so it's David Neff, very prominent, respected evangelical this week. It was World Vision last year, and who knows who's coming next month. And as we redefine what we consider to be righteousness. Well, let me tell you someone who's not going to change his position on this issue, and it's me. And I'm not going to because the Bible clearly explains that homosexuality is a sin. And like other heterosexual sins, if it's not repented from, it will keep one out of heaven. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, Do not be deceived. Neither, sec- neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you believe the Bible as I believe you do, then the most loving way that you and I can love homosexuals is by opposing that which will keep them out of heaven. We love them by standing for truth, not compromising it. But unfortunately, this position, I believe, uh, will not or is not currently considered loving. It will increasingly be considered a bigoted position. And yet this is the position in which I believe God holds. And so we're coming to a place in Luke's gospel. The reason I'm I'm mentioning this to you is there's a passage here in Luke chapter 6 in which Jesus says, blessed are you, we'll see this in a moment, when people hate you. And blessed are you when people revile you. And when they shun you. And they spurn you. And as I've been studying, I actually intended to preach that passage today, but I feel compelled to kind of lay that passage aside until next week. And I want to specifically with you consider how we as God's people, living in the culture in which we do, face this issue. And so coming to God's Word and considering what Jesus has to say here in Luke chapter 6 and then applying it to this sexual revolution as we consider how we can respond to our changing culture with both conviction and compassion in a way that loves all people, loves the lost, and at the same time honors Jesus Christ. And so I want uh, to ask you for your prayers, Uh, not just for me as I, I figure out what to say next week, but for our church, for our nation, for the American church, the Western church, that God would uh, maintain his remnant who would hold to truth. And we would do so in a way that honors him and loves the lost. And so there's just a bit of a commercial for you for next week and a solicitation of your prayers, which I would appreciate very much. So you found your way, I trust, to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Hear now the word of God. 
And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now that we can come and gather together once again as your people, Hamilton Baptist Church, and to seek to know you better through your word, to seek to understand your will for our lives and how we can be the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for it. I trust you would like to do a work in our hearts today, as you have done in my life this past couple weeks as I consider this passage. And Father, I pray that you in your kindness to us, we sung of your kindness today, that your kindness, as Paul says in Romans, leads to repentance. Be kind to us today that we too might repent of the sin that is in our heart. For our great good and the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The uh, 17th century scientist and mathematician and Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves, is to be happy. I believe he's right. I believe we all have a desire, perhaps placed in us by God, to be happy. I don't think God denies this, nor does he rebuke this. I don't think Jesus challenges this. And yet I do think Jesus comes upon the scene and begins to explain to us that though we desire to be happy, we are seeking that happiness in all the wrong places. That Jesus has come and and he has been here to show us where true and abiding happiness can be found. Or perhaps to use a biblical word, true and abiding blessing. And certainly to be blessed is to be happy. Though it's more than that, isn't it? I think perhaps to be blessed, as Jesus announces here four times, is is to be approved by God and and therefore happy to, to have this true and strong and stable joy. And he begins to talk about what does the blessed man look like. And then he contrasts that, as you see there at the end of this passage, with the woes. You know, four times woe to you, he says. Now, when someone says woe to me, they're not saying, uh, they're, they're not saying condemn me. Jesus is not condemning people like this. Rather, when someone says woe to me, they're saying pity me. I'm in a pitiable place. I'm in a very difficult place. And so Jesus says about these people, it's a pity that you are there. He says, woe to you. I'm sad for you. It's a terrible place to be, the terrible things to pursue. And so Jesus really gives us two alternatives to live in this passage very clearly. He says there's one way to live and you will have a blessed life now and even more blessings to come. And there's another way to live in which you will have a hard life now and even more so to come. He tells this uh, to, a, to a crowd, a massive group of people. I don't know if you notice this in verse 17. He, we see who's there attending his sermon. And the Bible says, And he came down and stood with them on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So remember last week he chose those apostles. So we have 12 apostles. That's one group that's with them. And they're probably wondering, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be an apostle? What are we supposed to do now? 
And then there's this other group, isn't there? We, we read here a great crowd of his disciples. And so this massive amount of people who want to follow Jesus and learn from Jesus and obey Jesus. And then there's a third group there. If you notice carefully in verse 17, and a great multitude of people. And so there's, a, there's this crowd, a great multitude who aren't his disciples, but are looking for something from Jesus. And this is clear as we look in verse 18, who came to hear him and to be healed from their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and the crowd sought to touch him for all the power came out of him and healed them all. And so people are coming to be healed by Jesus, that Jesus might bless them, that they might lay hold of him and receive this this healing or this, this freedom over their spiritual captivity. And so people are gathering to Jesus. In fact, you notice where this crowd is coming from. Back up in verse 17. It says, The great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Jesus is in Galilee at this time, in the north of Israel. Judea is in the south. Jerusalem's in the south. It's about a three or four day journey. And so people are traveling from the south to see Jesus. They're leaving their villages. They're putting the clothes sign up in the shop. And they are gathering their things on this, this trip up to find this new preacher and this new miracle worker. And it's, by the way, it's just not them. We just have people coming from Tyre and Sidon, which is outside of Jerusalem. In other words, there are Gentiles flocking to Jesus at this time. Thousands of people gathering to Christ, coming to Him, this multi-ethnic ministry already in Jesus' life and ministry. And by the way, this would be very unusual. In fact, it would be unheard of. We have no ancient records of any prominent preacher or teacher gathering people from days' journeys away to come and to hear Him and to be ministered to by Him. And this is what he's doing, this great healing crusade, as verse 19 says, people wanted to touch him. And so you can imagine wave after wave of people pressing in on Jesus to lay hold of Jesus. A picture, a picture I have in my mind is somewhat of a chaotic scene. I don't know if the apostles are trying to do crowd control or, or what their role is at this time, but people are pressing in on Jesus, right? They want to lay hold of Jesus. So don't think in your mind, and, and not just in this time, but, but as we study Luke's gospel of this nice, like, tranquil ministry that Jesus has sitting under a shade tree with sheep in the background and a little kid on his lap, right? A little uh, butterfly comes and lands on his finger or something like that. That's that's not the case at all. It's mayhem. I mean, there are thousands of people and they just want to lay hold of him and they're pressing in on him and and trying to grab him and power is leaving him. And and there are times when Jesus will even be crushed by this crowd. He'll have to flee away from them. And somehow in the midst of all this, Jesus gets calm, you know, and, and he gets control of the situation. And he says, you know, this is a good time to preach. And so we see in verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and he begins to, to preach this sermon to them. We call this the sermon on the plain. We do so because verse 17 says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. Now it's very similar to Matthew's sermon on the mount from Matthew 5 through chapter 7. But Luke's is much shorter. And so we're, we're not sure if Luke is, if it's the same sermon and Luke is just giving a concise version of that sermon, or maybe Jesus is preaching similar sermons on different occasions. I'm, I'm not sure it matters much, but you'll notice very, it'll be very similar to Matthew's sermon on the Mount. And it's here in this message, just like in Matthew's message, that Jesus begins with these beatitudes or these blessings, that he blesses certain kinds of people. And Luke's going to add these woes. Matthew won't have those. And when he, when he lays out these blessings and woes, they're very unexpected. And Jesus says, I want you to understand if you're rich and if you're comfortable And if everybody likes you and you're successful, man, I pity you. Woe to you. But if you're poor and you have nothing to eat and you cry a lot and everybody hates you, wow, life is good, isn't it? Right? You're you're blessed, he says. And, And this is confusing because our world pretty much says the exact opposite. Right? The the great things are what Jesus pities. Right? And, and, and we think we, this doesn't make sense. What, what do you mean? How is being poor and hungry and, and weeping? How is that a blessing? Right? And every time you turn on daytime television and you, you I don't know, you watch, watch the Dr. Phil show or whatever, right? And it, it's always the same story. Someone shows up and said, I had nothing, right? I was on the street, whatever, and now I have billions, right? And everybody's clapping and everybody's so happy. 
No one shows up and said, I have billions and I lost it all and now I don't have a place to lay my head. And everybody's, oh, isn't that great? Wonderful. And yet that seems to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in my kingdom, I don't value power. I don't value wealth. I don't value comfort. I, I don't value recognition. You know what? I value poverty and hunger and mourning. Now, who wants to join? Right? Who, who wants to come into my kingdom? This is my kind of place. We live the exact opposite life. That's why some have called his kingdom the upside-down kingdom because it's so contrary to the way we live, what we naturally value. It, it seems backwards. And so I think what we're going to have to do this morning is work a little bit to try to understand what Jesus is saying and apply these truths to our lives. In fact, to be perfectly honest, I've uh, uh, studied this passage more than I study most, and I still find it somewhat confusing. And, and theologians really are all over the place on, on, on these teachings. And so hopefully God will help us as we try to understand what's going on here and what Jesus is actually saying. But before we look at these blessings and these woes in turn, I just want to um, maybe give some, some helpful comments as to how we can understand what's going on. And, and o- overall, what Jesus is teaching us here is that there should be a discernible difference between the way the world lives and the way the church lives. And there should be a, a massive difference between what the church values and what the world values. There should be a difference in how much we value wealth and how much we value comfort and how much we value things. And to be honest, I, I think, sadly, there's probably very little difference. Um, there, and at least I would imagine there's not as much difference as there should be. The world values, for instance, uh, peace and reputation and, and things like that. And I think so does the American Christian. And, and the world spends their money often to increase their own comfort and to increase their own pleasure, and, and so does the American Christian. And so I think there's going to be some good application here. I think the Scripture is going to read us a little bit today and search our hearts and perhaps do a profound impact in us, I hope, and I've been praying. The second thing I'd like to say before we look at these uh, Beatitudes is that what Jesus is, is dealing not simply with circumstances of life, but He's dealing with our heart. Um, he, he's not, in other words, He's not saying if you're rich... You're not a Christian. Nor is he saying if you're, if you're successful, you're not a Christian. And the reason we know that is that we have the rest of the Bible. And there are plenty of rich people that follow God. Abraham was very rich. Right? Uh, David was rich and Job was rich. And there are plenty of people who are happy. David, David was a happy man and Paul was a happy man. Timothy had a good reputation. And so he's not in some saying, when he says blessed are the poor, he's not saying, okay, go out and seek to be poor. Go out and seek to be hungry. Go out and seek to be mournful. He said, I don't think he's saying that at all. But I think what he is saying, when, when wealth comes to you, you should be suspicious of it. When you have everything you need, you should be suspicious of that. Your heart should be sending off a little warning light because there are temptations around. And at the same time, when poverty comes and, and hunger comes and sadness comes... You, you as a Christian should prize that time. You should treasure it. Not that you should seek it, but when it does come in the sovereignty of God, you shouldn't despair, but you should recognize that God is going to do something wonderful and, and powerful. So he's not saying seek these things, but he is saying treasure them when you have them. Nor is he saying refuse these things, but if you do have them, be suspicious of them. And, and, and beyond that, the last thing I would say before we look at these Beatitudes is that Though he's, he's speaking in concrete terms and physical reality, physical poverty and hunger and mourning and so forth, I think there's also spiritual truths behind every one of these principles. And so we're going to try to handle both of them. All right? So let's th- consider the first one. Blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. Look in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then the corresponding woe, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And so, first of all, he's saying, uh, very clearly, blessed are the poor. And that, that makes us wonder, what's blessed, blessed about being poor? Uh, and, and how is that a blessing to us? Well, the Bible tells us over and over again that wealth becomes a very strong temptation to us. It, it tempts us to become an idol. It tempts us to begin to put our security in our money and security in everything that we have and that we turn away from God and we think, I I don't need God because I have money and money can provide for everything that I have. And there's a very strong temptation. The Bible over and over tells us, be careful not to put your trust in your wealth and in your money. For instance, the author of the book of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 30 says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but 
give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And so there's a, there's a temptation there. There's a, a warning there. This is why Jesus says, woe to you are rich, for you have received your consolation. That word consolation is an interesting word. It's the Greek word parakaleo. Now, for some of you, that, that kind of uh, registers with you, doesn't it? For the rest of you, you have no idea what that means, and that's okay. For the geeks here, it, the parakaleo, we, we know that, that that means Jesus used that same word to describe the Holy Spirit, doesn't he, in John 14, 15, and 16. And he says, your comforter is coming. And then here he says, so woe to you if your wealth is your comfort. Because that's all the comfort you're going to get. Woe to you if you're living for this wealth, if this is your goal. Woe, woe to you because, because these things, when they come to you, you'll turn from God. You'll find your comfort in God, comfort and wealth and not in God. And Jesus says, I pity you. I pity that life when your wealth becomes your identity and who you are. In fact, in, in, in about four or five years, we'll get to Luke 16. And there's this wonderful uh, story there in, in Luke 16. There's a parable that Jesus tells. And it's, it's, um, there's two characters in the parable. And one's a beggar, and his name is Lazarus. And then there's a, a rich man. You know the story, don't you? And the beggar begs from... Um, the Lazarus begs from the rich man, and the rich man won't give him anything, and they both die, and they kind of switch roles, the, the beggar's in heaven and the rich man's in torment and hell. And, and you know what uh, God says to the rich man? He says, in your life, you had your comfort, right? That's your comfort. That's what you lived for. M- many theologians, when they study that parable, are somewhat confused, because why does Jesus name the beggar? The beggar's name is Lazarus. But the rich man gets no name. You know, why, why, do, why does one get a name and, and the other doesn't? Well, some have speculated that the rich man, that's who he became. That's all he was about, his wealth. That became his identity. That became who he is. And Jesus says, woe to you. If these things that you're living for become so prominent that that becomes all that you want. The Christian says, you know, I have a name. I, I have a name whether I have money or not. In fact, the Christian's going to react much differently to poverty, isn't he? He should at least. If, if the non-Christian loses his job and that's what he's living for, that do, doom has come upon him. His whole identity's been challenged. But if the, the Christian loses his job, he, he still has his identity. He still has what he longs for, namely Jesus Christ. You can't take that from him. And that person is truly blessed as opposed to the other. And so Jesus says there is blessing in poverty. But even beyond that, he, he's teaching us that there is blessing in spiritual poverty. And blessed are the poor in spirit. And the reason I believe there's a spiritual lesson behind this physical one is that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, that's exactly what he says in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you realize you're spiritually bankrupt, when you have nothing. Now remember who Jesus is ministering to. Is he ministering to the needy? Well, certainly. Those the poor? Certainly he is. But is he also ministering to people who have money? Well, we have Levi, right? He just called Levi. Um, Peter, Andrew, James, and John have all been called. They all seem to be middle-class guy. We know that James and John, their dad has employees for their family business. And so they don't seem to be poor people. And so when he says, blessed are the poor, it doesn't mean I'm only ministering the poor, but I am only ministering to those who are poor in spirit. Those who are like Peter. Remember in, in, in chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter said to Jesus, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Well, that's spiritual bankruptcy. That's spiritual poverty. I have nothing. I have no wealth to lay before God in order to be received by Him. You see, religion usually builds us up. Religion is, uh, most religions cater to middle class spirituality. Where you say, here are the things you're supposed to do. And you say, well, I could do them. I could try hard. I could be noble. And, and therefore, God will accept me when I die. You know, I lived a good life. And I'll have all that to lay before God. And, and God will be pleased with that. And that will be enough. Yet Christianity comes along and says, no, you can't do that. You have nothing before God. There's actually nothing good in you. you they, even your self-righteousness is just as bad as, as wickedness. There's, there's no one good, no, not one. You see how different the Bible is from, from religion? How different the Bible is from our culture? All right, our culture is constantly trying to build us up. The Bible is constantly trying to take us down. The, the Bible is constantly saying, you need to think less of yourself. 
Our culture is constantly saying, you know, all the problems in our culture is we don't think highly enough of ourselves. If we just think we're better, if we just think we are somebody, if we believe in ourselves, we could accomplish anything. And that's what our culture constantly tells us. And Jesus says, no, it's the exact opposite. It's upside down. Remember when Moses was called? And God says, okay, Moses, I want you to go to the most powerful man in the world. And I want you to tell him he needs to give up his free labor force or else. And Moses says, what are you talking about? I can't do that. I mean, I'm a shepherd. I don't, I don't know kings. I, I, I don't have an army. I, I don't, I, I'm not even witty. I, I'm not eloquent. I, how am I supposed to talk to a king? And, and God hears Moses complain. You know what God says to him? D- does he say, Moses, man, stop putting yourself down. You are somebody. You are eloquent. You are wonderful. You, I, I believe in you. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, you're right. You're right. You're not witty. You're not eloquent. But I made your mouth. I made your tongue. He didn't say, Moses, look at yourself. He says, yeah, understand you have nothing, but I will be with you. It's not where to think are rich, where to think we're poor in spirit, but God is rich. There's a, there's a passage in, in Isaiah that is somewhat startling. In fact, it's a good test to see if you're poor in spirit or if you're middle class in spirit. And the Bible says, um, Fear not, you worm Jacob. I will help you, says the Lord. Now insert your name there, okay? And then try to search your heart for the emotional reaction. Fear not, you worm, insert name. I will help you, says the Lord. Now how, how do you feel? Do you, are you offended? Or do you have joy? Are you saying, who, who are you to call me? I'm not a worm. Or are you saying, I am a worm, but God will help me? God will come alongside me? If you say I'm not a worm to God, it's a spiritual middle class. Don't call me that. Who do you think you are? You're not bankrupt. You still have some credit in you. See, God doesn't look at people who think they're worms and say, no, you're not a worm, you're a butterfly. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, yeah, you're right. But don't worry. I have all the wealth in the world. I have all the grace and I have all the mercy in the world. It is only for the spiritually poor, the, the spiritually crippled. I used to, when I was in college and I would share my faith in college, I would hear this all the time. I don't know if people still say that. They say, isn't Christianity a crutch? Have you heard that? Isn't your faith a crutch? And I used to be offended by that. But then I got to think, well, what's wrong with a crutch? Right? I mean, whoever gets mad in a crutch? No one does. We all appreciate a crutch when we need it. What they're saying is, you're a cripple. And I'm not a cripple. Therefore, I don't need Christianity. Right? They're not poor. There's nothing wrong with a crutch if we, if we need a crutch. This is why Jesus says, I'm only here to save, to heal the sick. The, the, the healthy, I, I can't do anything. You have to understand you're sick in order for me to minister to you. And when you understand you're sick, when you understand you have nothing before God, then you will be blessed because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Right? Yours, by the way, present tense. Yours right now, this very instant, is the kingdom of heaven. Not will be the kingdom, but is right now. Colossians 1.13, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a king in heaven sitting at the right hand of God, ruling on your behalf. Now, things are going to get better by the way. But right now the kingdom has started and one day the kingdom will consist of all creation and unimaginable blessings if we are poor in spirit. For spiritually poor, you must come admitting you're a sinner. You must come admitting saying, God, I deserve hell. I deserve your wrath. Please be merciful to me. I throw myself at the mercy of my judge for Christ has died for me. You have, only when you realize that. Only when you become a beggar. And there are people saying, I'm not going to beg. I won't beg. Well, you're not spiritually poor. And God will do nothing for you. You have to understand your need. I'm poor in spirit, so poor that Jesus had to die for me. And so loved that Jesus was willing to die for me. Beatitude number two. Blessed are the hungry and woe to the full. Look in verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, 
for you shall be hungry. So blessed are those who hunger and woe to the full. Woe to those who are satisfied. Woe to those who are filled. Woe to those who have everything they think they need, whether it's food or toys or jewelry or accomplishment or vacation or cars. Woe to those who have no desire for true food, for true riches. Food and things can just be like riches. We can put our trust in them. They can become our temptation and our idol. And Jesus says, woe to you if you are so full with this world that there is no room for me. But I think even beyond that physical reality, he is teaching a spiritual truth. And that is blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Again, the reason I believe this is behind this truth is Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus is saying, I think blessed when your spiritual poverty makes you hungry for me. Hungry for righteousness, hungry for intimacy with God, hungry for, for forgiveness and mercy. Make, blessed are you when you're like the psalmist who says, as the deer pants for the winter of the water, so my soul longs for you. I long for you. I, I ache for you. You see, Jesus Christ is not simply interested in being your savior. He's not simply interested in being your help. He wants to become your satisfaction. He wants to become your delight, your desire. He wants you to want him. In fact, in John 6 and verse 25, Jesus says something very important. Whoever comes to me, he says, shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never, do you know what? Thirst. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What it means to believe in Jesus is like to be one who is parched and dying from dehydration and find a clear mountain spring and crawling to that spring and taking that spring in and finding that refreshment and finding that delight and your soul says, ah, this is what I needed. This is what I longed for. This is what I dreamed of. That's what belief in Jesus is like. Blessed are those who believe in me for they shall never thirst again. And Jesus is calling for us to be hungry for Him, to thirst for Him, to find our satisfaction in Him. In fact, hunger is very powerful, isn't it? You know what hunger does? It, it moves you to action. The hungry people act. The full people are, are, are content just to push themselves away from the table and digest for a little bit or go sit on the couch for a while. But the hungry go searching, don't they? So the full, full won't come looking for me, Jesus says. Woe to them. I pity them who have filled themselves on the trinkets of this world. But when our hunger for God gives us a pursuit of God and a pursuit of intimacy with God and a pursuit of obedience to God, well, we're blessed, Jesus says, at that time that we long for righteousness, that we hunger for more righteousness. You understand, by the way, when we... The Bible says if you hunger for righteousness, the assumption is you don't have all the righteousness that you need, all all the godliness is what it's referring to, that, that you're not perfect. And God recognizes you're not perfect. God knows you're a sinner. Um, And and so if you confess your sin to God, he's not going to be like, what? I I had no idea. He's well aware. In fact, we saw the apostles. He chose some uh, last week, some really messed up people. The reality is it's, it's okay that you have sin. It's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. Right? You just can't stay there. So we're all not okay. We all are messed up. And God's well aware of that. But God is saying, now do you hunger for growth? Do you hunger to get past it? Do you hunger for more of me? More intimacy with me? More desire for me? Because if you do, if you come with me, I, I want to change you. I want to transform you. I want you to grow in your Christ-likeness. And this is exactly what he'll do with these apostles. And by the way, he doesn't fix them overnight, does he? Right? No, it's a, it is a long ministry in their life. And sometimes it takes a lifetime for God to work in us. But he longs for us to hunger for more to hunger for more Christ-likeness. So how do you know if you hunger for righteousness? Well, you're doing something about it. You're, you're moved to action, right? You're pursuing holiness. And I think the question is raised. Are, are you pursuing righteousness? Are you hungry for more intimacy with God? Are, or are you just content with where you're at? Are you just floating down the river? Or are you diligently looking for Him, desperate for Him, I would compel you to hunger. I would encourage you to stop gorging yourself on the world. 
I would encourage you to turn off the television every once in a while and spend some time with God, longing for more of Him, more intimacy with Him. I would encourage you to strategize and plan and pray as to how you can grow in Christ's likeness, how you can seek after the Lord, that how you can get a greater hunger in your heart. You know, one of the best ways that I find to, to feed, uh, feed the hunger, if I can put it that way, to, to make myself more hungry for God, is reading Christian biographies. It is it's like medicine for my soul. And, I, and maybe, maybe you're just totally full and there's no pursuit of Christ right now in your life. I would encourage you, after service, go to our library and grab a Christian biography and let a, a, a man whom God used who was hungry for God compel that hunger with you. Or better yet, our, our community groups, our, our places are, are, are designed to be communities of hunger, if you will. And, and I may not be hungry, but someone else in that community group may be and their hunger compels me. And I want that desire and I want that longing. And, and we begin to propel one another towards righteousness and Christ-likeness. Blessed are you if you hunger for God, if you hunger for the righteousness in which He holds out for you. Well, lastly, and third, uh, thirdly, we're not going to consider the fourth, as I've already established, but lastly, uh, consider blessed are the weeping and woe to the laughing. Blessed are the weeping and woe to the laughing. And so in some sense, he's saying blessed are those who mourn, isn't he? Um, and and he, he's saying the sad are blessed. The broken who are in Christ are blessed. And that's once again confusing because we, don't under, we understand laughing with blessedness, but we don't understand weeping with blessedness. And yet I think if we pause and think about that and you survey your life and you, you wonder, well, when are the times in which I've experienced God to the greatest degree? When has He been so close to me? When has He been that very present help? Well, it's in times of trouble, isn't it? And, and there are times, and I, if you follow Christ for any period of length, you understand this. It is when I was sad, when I was broken, that I experienced my God to the greatest degree. That there are blessings and intimacy with God that He reserves evidently for times of hardship and difficulty. And though we would, we would never want to go back there to those places, we look back at them and we're happy that they happened. We're glad that we lived through them. They were hard, but it was there that I met my God. He did not leave me in my sorrow. He came and he blessed me through it. And they draw us closer to him. Blessed, yes, are those who mourn. But blessed are those even beyond that who mourn over their sin. And I think, again, there's a spiritual truth behind this. Blessed are you when your hunger for righteousness causes you to mourn your lack of righteousness, to mourn over your sin. And once again, our, our culture does not understand this. We don't live in a culture in which we mourn over what's wrong with us. Now, we know how to weep in our culture, but we don't weep over wickedness. Um, we, we, we give very little thought to what's wrong with us. And even in the church, I think Christians give very little thought to our sin in our lives and certainly very little brokenness over that. Instead, we prefer to be amused, right? We, we like to keep it lighthearted. Right? Maybe you want it to get a little light right now. In fact, I, I remember when I first started preaching, and most of you know I wasn't raised uh, in a Christian home and there weren't a lot of Christians around and, and they heard I, I was being going to be a preacher and, and they, very well-meaning, they gave me lots of advice as to how to be a good preacher. And the vice usually was, you know, be funny, tell stories, keep it light. Right? That's what we like. We like things to be light. We don't like hard introspection. We like to laugh. In fact, Neil Postman uh, some years ago wrote a wonderful book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Some of you may have read it. And he traces the history of, uh, of America. And he identifies a specific American city that represents the culture of America at that time. And so in the 18th century, he said the city that best represented America was Boston, the, the Revolutionary War spirit, the Minuteman with a, one hand on his plow and one hand on his rifle ready to go in a minute's notice. And then in the 19th century, he said New York best represented America, the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, a welcoming nation, a booming and growing nation. And in the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, he said the city that best represented America was Chicago the sprawling westward expansion, 
the, the, the use of the railroads. And then he gets to the late 20th century, and he identifies a city that best represents America. Do you know what it is? Las Vegas. Right? Yeah. And I've been to Las Vegas more times than I care to admit growing up in Southern California. But there is a city right in the middle of a desert. I mean, it's just desert. It's desolate. And there's a massive city there that exists for one reason, only one reason, to entertain us. You know, showgirls and slot machines. And, and that's why it's there, that we might be amused. And it is kind of characterizes where we are. He calls it the Las Vegas syndrome, that we want all amusement all the time. We don't want to think about our sin. We don't want to think about what's going wrong in our life. We don't certainly want to mourn it. We, don't, we just want to shrug our shoulders at it. When we're confronted with sin, we just say, okay, well, that's the way it is, and we just move on. There was uh, used to be a prominent baseball player who was a kind of a hero of mine growing up. He played for the Los Angeles Dodgers, and then he went on to play for the San Diego Padres. When he left the Dodgers, I was devastated. And, and, and uh, the, the media called him Mr. Clean, but his, his teammates didn't call him that because they knew what he was like when he was not in front of the camera. And, and, and in fact, eventually it came out that he, when he was divorcing his first wife with whom he had two children and he was engaged to another woman who was pregnant and just before the wedding day, like just days before, he decided to marry a third woman. And then it soon, right after that marriage, became evident that there was a fourth, chi- a fourth woman who had a child who was just recently born uh, from him. You see, he was more like a padre than a dodger. Right? All right. Allegra gets it. Okay. Um, so this is what he says. All right. No more corny jokes. This is what he says. Um, quote, if the children are mine, I will live up to my moral obligations, which I feel strongly about because I'm a Christian. Right? And so he says, yeah, there, there's, it's out there and, and I'll do something about it. But the one thing I won't do is mourn over it. In fact, he was asked by the media. Evidently, it was an embarrassment to do this back then, 20 years ago. And they, and they said, why aren't you embarrassed? And he said, quote, God has a purpose in everything. So he shrugs in his sin. He, he's lost his ability to mourn his sin. He said he laughs. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep then. The book of Ecclesiastes says in chapter 7, the laughter of fools is like the crackling of burning twigs. Life is unraveling. Life is on fire. And we keep like fools laughing and smiling. James instead says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. See, blessed is the man who can cry out, God, I'm on fire. God, there's sin throughout my life. I need your help. Blessed is the man who can mourn over that sin because it is mourning that leads to repentance. It is mourning that is the key to personal revival. Unless you mourn over your sin, brothers and sisters, you will keep doing your sin. But what happens? I know because I do this as well. I'm confronted by my sin and I say, well, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't have done that. And, and there's no sadness. There's no brokenness. And what happens the afternoon or two days later? I'm back in it again. And it's only when we are broken over it, only when we say, God, I have offended you. I have rebelled against you. I have trampled the blood of Christ, which has redeemed me. And only when we're broken over that sin will we, will we have the, the hatred in our heart to turn from it. So we must mourn. Paul says, and it's not like worldly mourning. The world says, well, I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry that I ruined everybody's life. I'm sorry that my, my trouble caused this in, in your life. And that's not, that's not mourning. That's regret. It is godly sorrow. It is when you say, I betrayed you, Father. I've committed adultery against you, Father. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I don't want to be that. It's when you're broken that God will strengthen you, that you might turn from your sin. Paul would write, your sorrow led to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, but worldly sorrow brings death. It's those who mourn now over their sin that Jesus say will laugh then. Did you see that there in verse 21? Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. There's some people that are, find themselves in trouble and they wonder if they'll ever laugh again. 
I think this is a wonderful promise. You should hold, if you find yourself in trouble, hold to this verse. Memorize it. Put it in your heart. When the, when the enemy says, you will never get out of this, you may refute it with God's word. As Jesus will return and he will come and create a place where there'll be, as the Bible says, no more mourning and no more sadness. Jeremiah says, Then shall the young woman rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them, and I will give them gladness for sorrow. Or as one commentator puts it, One day all our suffering will come to an end. What laughter will ring throughout heaven then as we stand in the golden city, reveling uh, reveling in the surprise of our redemption, like the sudden realization that all our hopes have come true. We will burst into everlasting laughter of joy. Blessed are you who mourn for your sin. I tell you on the authority of God's word, there is coming a day in which all you shall do for all eternity is laugh because of the work of Jesus Christ in your life. But if you will not mourn your sin, if you will not turn on it, woe to you. You are in a pitiable place. Isaiah 65 says, My servants will shout for joy with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. In fact, this story, this beatitude reminds me of a story in Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar of Babylon, he's throwing a great feast. You know the story? And he has all his concubines there, and, and all the rich people are there, and the powerful people are there, and, and the, the wine is flowing, and, and the food is there, and they're laughing, laughing and they're toasting each other, and they're, they're gorging on the finest foods and satisfying all their desires. Meanwhile, outside the city walls is... Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he brought his army. And yet, Belshazzar is too busy fasting to be bothered with reality. I think that's kind of a parable for Americans. We're too busy feasting to be bothered by the reality that there's a holy God. Well, you know the story in Daniel 5, an invisible hand starts floating around the room. And I I imagine that's a pretty quick buzzkill, if I could put it that way. Right? If you're partying and a hand starts floating around and, and all of a sudden that's going to get your attention. And it does. And it writes on the wall. You know what it writes? It says your days are numbered. It says the party's over. This kingdom is over. And it was. That night Belshazzar was killed by Cyrus, the king of Persia. He was overthrown. Do you, do you live for money and and food and things and amusement is that is that your idol Jesus Christ walked this earth and he died upon a cross for our sin and then three days later he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and I'm telling you that's the handwriting on the wall of this kingdom this kingdom's days are numbered He is coming back again. And He is going to bring His kingdom in completion. And so who are you? Are you blessed? Do you have the blessed deep life? Are you hunger for more? Is there mourning over sin in your life? Or are you self-sufficient and self-satisfied and and self-sustaining? One individual paraphrased these Beatitudes saying, Blessed is the deep full of life. Blessed, deep, full of life are the poor of spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who mourn, for one day they shall laugh, being set free from what haunts them. But woe to you who are self-sufficient. Woe to you who are proud of your religious lineage. Woe to you who have it all figured out. Woe to you who have got it all right, for you've got the fullness that you'll have. And woe to you who are full and yet starving. What an empty place to be. And woe to you who laugh while your soul decays. I wonder if God's word would help us today. Perhaps give us some course changes in our lives. And, and to be honest, I'll just, you know, I read this and it's just I'm not there. And I shrug at my sin just like the best of them. And sometimes I grow so full on everything I have going on that there's no hunger left for God. And I, I just praise God that there's grace. I'm just so glad He's not done with me yet. 
He's not done with you yet. There's grace that covers all of that. And I think that is an understanding that's a start, isn't it? It's where we have to understand where we're, where we're beginning, that God would create this in us, that He would truly give us the blessed life, that we would no longer be deceived by the life that is promised us by this world. Blessings now, rewards later, he says. Satisfaction, laughter, a kingdom of God. There's some perhaps maybe here saying, well, how can you be sure? How can you be sure that if I live this way, that, that there's this reward that comes? How, how do you know? Well, there's a very interesting phrase here in verse 19. If you just turn back there as we end our time together. It says, and the crowd sought to touch him. And then read this. Did you catch that? For power came out from him and he healed them all. Jesus heals others by losing. Did you catch that? He, he, he makes others whole by losing strength himself, losing power himself. Remember the bleeding woman who touched the hem of his garments, right? And, and he says, I felt power drained from me. Right? And I wonder if that's a hint. And in other words, do you know how, how you're going to be saved? It's by Jesus losing. It's by Jesus being broken. I wonder if it points to the cross. We get whole because He gets broken. We get strength because He becomes weak. We get life because He dies. In in, in fact, it, it seems to me that these rewards we receive precisely because Jesus has taken this life upon Himself. That is, He who is perfectly rich became poor. That you and I might be eternally rich. And that he who was perfectly full, he had all that he needed. He walked away from it all so that you and I might be filled. Oh, and that he who was eternally happy became the man of sorrows so that you and I might have eternal joy if you receive him. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He will invite you into that kingdom this day and forevermore. Our Father, we're thankful for our Lord. We're thankful for the life that He teaches us to live. And maybe I'm, I'm the only one limping along here, Father. Maybe there are brothers and sisters here. I'm so thankful for your patience with us. But Father, can, can we get into gear a bit? Can you help us not just be convicted, but actually do something about it? Help us help each other. Father, I I thank you that we have truth. This world just is lying to us over and over again. You've given us truth. I pray that we would believe it and act on it. That we would reject what this world values and embrace what you value, believing that that is where blessings come. I thank you for my friend here who does not know you, that they have come today. Perhaps they've sat under the preaching of God's Word for years. Perhaps this is the first time. I pray that you would work in their heart through your Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And He has proved it by being raised from the dead, appearing to more than 500 people. I pray that they would bow their knee to this King and receive the eternal life and the blessings that He would offer them this very moment if they would give themselves to him by faith. We ask that you do this work for our great good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.